Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Review of Democracy podcast series. My name is Robert Nemet, I'm an editor at Revdem, and my guest today is Dean Starkman. Dean is a fellow at the CEU Democracy Institute's Center for Media, Data and Society and senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the Washington DC-based news organization. Since joining ICIJ in 2017, Dean has helped to lead projects including the Paradise Papers, the China Cables, the Luanda Leaks, FinCEN Fights, and most recently, the Pandora Papers. He is the author of The Watchdog That Didn't Bark, The Financial Crisis and the Disappearance of Investigative Journalism, published by Columbia University Press in 2014, an acclaimed analysis of business press failures prior to the 2008 financial crisis, that provides a groundbreaking theoretical framework for journalism's past, present, and future. Previously, he ran the Columbia Journalism Review's business section, The Audit, a web-based provider of media criticism, reporting, and analysis. He was also Wall Street correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, reporting on the intersection of finance and society from New York. His work on finance and media has also appeared in The New Republic, The Nation, Mother Jones, Washington Monthly, among other publications. An investigative reporter for more than two decades, Starkman has covered white-collar crime and national real estate for the Wall Street Journal and helped lead the Providence Journal's investigative team to a Pulitzer Prize in 1994. Dean, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you, Robert. What is the Pandora Papers about? The Pandora Papers is... um a uh, global investigation led by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, where I work, um, based on a leak of 11.9 million documents from um, these entities called offshore service providers. These are the companies that you go to when you want to create a shell company or any kind of corporation offshore. The investigation involved 150 news organizations and 600 journalists. ICAJ's model is uh, one in which we report and write our own stories, but also our main job, or certainly at least half the job, is to uh, assemble and manage these uh, international consortiums, these massive collaborations of journalists around the world to heighten the impact, both globally and within each nation. Um, The the investigation uh, revealed the full scope, I would say, that's its main contribution, full scope and scale of the offshore system, this extra-legal, uh, mostly secret, um, parallel financial system that's available uh, exclusively for, by, for, and, and of the, uh, uh, the rich, the super-rich, and the multinational corporations. It allows them to avoid taxes and hide wealth. And it uh, creates a, a almost incalculable incal- number of follow-on social ills that uh, I think uh, the, the democratic world is trying to come to grips with. Pandora Papers is not the first similar project of, of ICIJ. There were the Panama Papers to start with, then the Paradise Papers, FinCEN Files, and so on. Could you please say a few words about those projects as well? Is the recent project, in a way, a continuation of them? Um, yeah, continuation and culmination, I would say. Yeah, so you missed a few. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> offshore leaks, uh, Swiss leaks, um, uh, Lux leaks, and um, Luanda leaks, and 
And uh, what the way I would describe it is um, those I have described it as uh, is uh, those those earlier projects, Chiral ICIJ projects, sort of chipped away at the wall of secrecy around uh, the offshore system, but the Pandora Papers which is a much bigger leak from a much larger array of offshore service providers, basically blew the wall apart. And now we can sort of see the system and it's all its, um, its vastness and its importance, its, 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 uh, its uh, connection to uh, the, 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 quote, legitimate uh, financial system. It's ab- absolutely inextricable from the legitimate financial system and is a uh, uh, a, a place where um, where essentially if you are rich, powerful, or a multinational corporation, you can evade the rule of law in your own country and find a, a law that you like better. This tax avoidance and and secrecy, in other words, is a threat to democracy. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, so let's exp- let's just back up. What's offshore? Hmm? Offshore is is uh, is sort of cloaked in mystery, and it's sort of associated with uh, palm trees and uh, coconuts. But it's really um, not exotic. It's it's very uh, and it's not particularly complicated. Uh, these are jurisdictions. The offshore system are, is a, a thing that grew up in the '60s and '70s, basically uh, when. Former British colonies and American dependencies like the Bahamas and the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, the Seychelles, these are places that also connected to the former French Empire, began to see profit in allowing people to come to incorporate uh, and create a legal entity um, and often in secret. And that's, that's sort of basically it. So what, what, and that legal entity now has enormous power. Among other things, it can create, open a bank account and own it. Right, and so the uh, these offshore entities would then go to some place like Estonia or uh, Hong Kong and open a bank account, and uh, at that point you could do two things. Right, you do two things. One is that you would move the money from where you actually earned it uh, or where you actually live, and on paper it would live somewhere else under a whole different uh, set of laws and ta- uh, and tax codes. And of course, these offshore jurisdictions, Bahamas, et cetera, these all passed laws that were super friendly to, to uh, non-resident uh, corporate owners, right? So um, because w- why? Well, they got a lot of fees and they created these mini little financial sectors in their, in their, um, in their jurisdictions. And basically, that's basically half the G- GDP of, uh, of a lot of these places. But what they did was they exported all sorts of external negative externalities on the rest of the world. So if you um, are a multinational corporation and you're selling lots of, oh, let's just say gym shoes, Nikes in uh, France, uh, you can set up a um, <clears throat> offshore company somewhere. In, this case, in the case of Nike, it was Ireland, which has another low-tax ch- no, low jurisdiction. Um, sell your shoes in France. You can charge your uh, – you, your uh, Irish unit will charge the French unit enormous fees to use the Nike swoosh. All your profits will disappear from France and, 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 and be shifted to Ireland where there's very little tax. 
So what of what is um, what's what kind of real social gain has occurred? None. And what kind of real uh, what kind of um, uh, actual economic transaction has has occurred? Zero. The real the the real profit was made in France, but the but the uh, but the actual income is booked in Ireland. So that's what the offshore system allows you to do. It's extremely powerful, and in a lot of senses. It's not really surprising that it grew to be a multi-trillion dollar thing because if, if Nike can do it, why can't I? And why can't everybody else? And the second aspect of this whole uh, affair is that you can uh, do it in secret. So instead of your name appearing on uh, uh, Robert Nemeth LLC, you could call it XYZ Corporation and you can hire two people from... Uh, Asia City or Trident Trust or or um, or um, Alcogal or one of these other offshore service providers who will put it, who will uh, uh, who will uh, sign their own name on it their own people's name on it and you are completely hidden. Now for a long time and it's still t- still the case in many places, you're even hidden from the place where the corp- place is incorporated. So if you until recently until the Panama Papers changed everything. Uh, you could set up your company in uh, the British Virgin Islands, and even the BVI wouldn't know who you are. <laughs> you know, so no one would know. So what you've done is uh, now you've created this um, super secret place where, if you are a, a drug dealer, uh, international terrorist, or a corrupt uh, public official in oh I don't know, let's just pick a country at random, Russia or Ukraine uh, under the previous regime, or any other place. Um, you can uh, put your money and move this money to the account owned by this anonymous company. Who's, and if you go and look up who this company is, all you'll see is names of Alcogal lawyers or, or other personnel from these, um, through these offshore per- service providers, and it's hidden from view. So if um, an authority, a prosecutors, or anybody else, tax authorities, wants to find out where this wealth is, absolutely no way of doing it. So that's what the offshore system is, and it, that's why it's, um, uh, it's enabled essentially um, you know, two enormous problems in the world. One is the defunding of legitimately elected governments around the world and and uh, and uh, that's just that's without secrecy uh, that's where uh, trillions of dollars of multinational corporations profits can be uh, can be shifted offshore but it's also enabled the kind of um, uh, massive public corruption that we see it, this is sort of this almost a modern incarnation of this of, of corruption that that is essentially looting of entire um, State oil funds, or or state uh, pension funds, or healthcare systems, or that kind of thing—the the kind of thing you see in the wholesale uh, uh, corruption that occurs in in places like Kazakhstan or Russia, for for, for that matter—that uh, it would not be possible without the offshore system. So that's why uh, we think it's important that this that the public can learn something about it. To take this one step further. I'd like to quote Bastian Obermeier and Frederick Obermeier, basically your colleagues, uh, who are journalists at the Süddeutsche Zeitung and who were among the first ones to have access to the Panama Papers back then and have been part of the international team of journalists uh, covering these stories. 
And they recently wrote an op-ed on the website of Deutsche Welle about the topic, and they claim that such revelations can actually weaken democracy. Uh, they base this claim on the fact that, and now I'm quoting them, doing offshore business means not only fewer taxes, but also the liberty to choose which laws the, to comply with. Permitting a small number of people to choose the laws that apply to them will create a two-class society. The offshore world and the rest of the world. People will no longer identify with a society in which there are different roles for different individuals and in which those on high can follow their own laws. And this poses a danger to our democracy as it makes it, as it, makes it easy for populists to garner votes. What do you think about this? Do you agree? Oh, yeah. That, I couldn't have said it better myself. The, 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 the Obermeyer brothers, I put that in quotes because they're not brothers. They're, they spell their names slightly differently, are, are well experienced in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the business of investigating the offshore system. And yeah, they were, uh, I believe, the responsible for for, um, for obtaining the, uh, the Panama Papers, which was a watershed. Yeah, I mean, their point, and just to sort of boil down their point and put it a different way, is um, people will lose faith in uh, democracy and democratic institutions, liberal institutions, if they feel the system is rigged. And uh, unfortunately, in this case, it actually is. And um, democracy has to, cannot, you know, tolerate, a, you know, a, a, a system where, or a separate financial system where essentially the game is rigged, where if you are, have access to one system, you can choose your tax rate and, um, and hide your wealth from um, tax authorities, prosecutors, civil claimants, uh, and all legitimate authority. You just don't have to obey that set of laws, period, full stop. And, um, you know, if, if, you, if you want people to have faith in liberal institutions, you have to, um, you know, they have to believe that the system isn't this, this colossal joke and, um, in order, and that the whole thing is, game, is gamed for, for rich people. And the way you convince them is to make sure that, you know, you are taking steps to reform the system. I mean, uh, one thing I think <sighs> democracy is a is a, it's a tough racket. It's a hard, hard, hard thing to do. It's just hard to pull off. And one of the reasons is it's easily manipulated, and it's um, it, it's the freedoms it provides allows it the system to be gamed. So if you are, you know, the financial industry, you know the rules of the Securities and Exchange Commission better than anybody else. And you can, you know, with, with the right lawyers, you can game the system to your advantage. And if, if you're um, a, a major bank involved in offshore transactions like J.P. Morgan, for instance, or Wells Fargo or the others that, that take part in, 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 in processing transactions for the offshore system, that's big business and you have an interest in, in keeping the system exactly how it, how it is. So, um, and I think people understand, you know, regular citizens understand that democracy is imperfect and it will never be perfect. It wasn't meant to be perfect. And uh, Churchill's quote about it's being the worst of all possible systems except for everything else is quite, quite accurate. And I think people understand that. But democracy's uh, least appreciated strength is its ability to reform itself. And when people see it 
at least trying to reform itself, trying to bring um, powerful malefactors to justice, at least that people uh, have a sense that they're invested in this system and they can take part in it. So it's, that's why it's critically important that this, that this um, two-tiered uh, system, this one for aristocrats and a system for everybody else, uh, cannot, uh, uh, is not sustainable, and, um, and it's important. Uh, the Obermeyer point is, is quite well taken. You know, for people, I don't think people are, 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 are expecting a perfect system. They don't expect democracy to be perfect, but it, they do uh, expect uh, that uh, democratic institutions will at least um, move in the direction of, of uh, trying to perfect themselves, and that's, uh, that's the least we can do. On that note, let's talk about the consequences of uh, such leaks and revelations. Have you seen any policy consequences that could be attributed to previous projects? And do you maybe expect any now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do get this question a lot. So where are the prosecutions and where are the people in handcuffs and that kind of thing? And I, I, th- I think it's it, it's a And it's not just about this investigation. I've been an investigative reporter for a long time, and people, you know, have this Hollywood idea that, which I actually also had for a while when I was younger too, that um, the newspaper publishes something and people get hauled before a grand jury. And I I get that. Um, But in this case, the cynicism is really um, – is not – is misplaced, I think. First – uh, it's been five years, but the Panama paper, p- Papers that people forget unleashed a global firestorm that led to many resignations, including a member of the pr- uh, prime minister of Iceland and other. There were, had far-reaching consequences in, and I, I want to say in Pakistan, as I recall, and I'm doing this from memory, but Philippines and around the week, even Canada, elsewhere. So there were immediate consequences from the Panama Papers, but the policy implications have been actually pretty interesting, you know, when you sort of think about it, because uh, the U.S. even um, has actually taken major steps in in policing its own citizens through, after the financial crisis, passed laws that require foreign banks to report back to the IRS, back to, sorry, the Treasury, um, who's got an account there. And that's been a huge... Uh, in, uh, that's been a huge um, um, made difference maker for in, in policing uh, uh, Americans with accounts overseas, number one. Number two, just this year, um, 2021, actually with the Trump, Trump administration passed the Corporate Transparency Act, which uh, essentially forces um, all owners of <clears throat> of shell companies to report to who the actual owners are to to Treasury, to this agency called FinCEN. And um, that's going to take, that's going to be a huge dent in the offshore secrecy business now uh, because because the world runs on dollars. And uh, if you want a bank account, you're going to have to report who your actual people are behind your shell company to the Treasury. And uh, that must be very unnerving if you are a if you are a um, a corrupt oligarch sitting on massive amounts of stolen money. And right now we're sort of in the middle of uh, this move by um, developed nations under the OECD 
and including the Biden administration, in fact, Biden administration leading the effort to impose a global uh, uh, minimum tax on multinational profits. And now <clears throat> you could argue it's not big enough or whatever, maybe there's some loopholes, but um, really the whole point of, um, the whole point of, um, of offshore, there's basically two points to offshore, secrecy, which we've discussed, and tax avoidance. And if you can't avoid taxes by uh, reporting profits from the BVI, why would you be in the BVI? There's no reason to be there. There's nothing there. There's, let me just be clear. Nobody makes anything in the BVI, you know, maybe pina coladas or, you know, kayaks or something. But they, you know, that, that, that there must be, there's huge amounts of uh, revenue reported flowing out of the BVI or the Cayman Islands, but nothing's there. There's nothing there. So there's no reason to, to, to go to the Cayman Islands if, if you're paying the same tax you would pay in, uh, in France. So um, these are policy steps that have huge, huge implications. And I don't want to toot our horn, own horn too much, but I'm telling you, and the, the Panama Papers came before I arrived at ICIJ. That was not me. But that had a huge impact on uh, on the global policy debate. It changed the game. It put the whole thing on the on the uh, global policy agenda, and it hasn't been this like steady march toward reform. But you could definitely argue, and it's also quite true that the policy debate is fully engaged at this point, and it's a moment of of extreme tension. In fact, about which way it's going to go. I mean, this is. The story of offshore is the story of the uh, financial interests versus the public interests. That's sort of the that's sort of the whole story, full stop. Um, and financial interests are very powerful. Yeah, they um, they are. Uh, I'm talking about banks based in New York, London, and Frankfurt, essentially, and they have enormous influence over um, over the policies of their respective countries. And if you have enormous influence over the policy of in Washington, you have a very big influence over the, how the whole global financial system looks. So I'm not going to say this is uh, it's game over. It's but it is game on, and uh, and uh, and the, those representing the public interests uh, have at least a better than even shot of uh, of, uh, of prevailing here. You mentioned that most people expect people in handcuffs. And uh, I'm sure that many of in our audience uh, have similar thoughts. Uh, so let's talk a bit about personal consequences as well, especially because in addition to oligarchs, uh, many political figures were also exposed uh, by the leaks, even by the uh, Pandora Papers now. There is, for example, uh, Andrei Babish, the Czech prime minister who lost the elections just a few days after the Pandora Papers had been published. Do you think there might be a connection here? You'd have to be a lot more plugged into Czech politics than me to 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 uh, to answer that question. But um, it had to be something that Czech voters took into account when they headed to the polls. And it's also clear that uh, it's not just the Czech Republic, but half of Latin America is, is up in arms about, and po politicians are in hot water in, in that region. And, um, and the, the stories had a huge impact in Pakistan and, um, and elsewhere. So, um, and that's really gratifying, I got to say. I mean, people say, we talk about handcuffs. Well, um, uh, 
That depends on the strength of rule of law. There's two points about that. One, it depends on the strength of rule of law in the, in the nations we're talking about. So if Konstantin Ernst, the, the, the chief image maker for Vladimir Putin, is found to have a, a secret stake and a billion dollar Moscow real estate development, um, and there are any 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 particular problems there, that's a that's an issue for Moscow for Russian courts, and that's not something that um, that um, you know that uh, we or you know, anybody's going to have any influence over. That's just a problem of a problem of rule of law in the in the respective countries. Um, secondly, um, a big part of the problem of offshore is that. It's basically legal. It's not about it being illegal. I mean, that's the problem. The problem is you can pick and choose which which legal system you want to to be um, under. You want you want your money to be based in. So um, that's the problem. That is that. That's why um, when when uh, Nike or Apple shifts profits from from France to Ireland, it's not about a question of anybody breaking any laws. It's the problem is the law being the laws are being uh, uh, that needs to be, the laws are the problems laws themselves are the problem so but um, what's gratifying is that voters sense that this isn't right and um, they have basically one lever to pull uh, when it comes to this kind of thing I work I guess two they could they go into the streets and demonstrate which they do and they can go vote and um, both and that's that's basically what journalism is supposed to be doing in the first place, providing people with information that they can use to decide who uh, should best govern them. And so if we're able to do that, um, uh, I think that uh, we've done our job. Let's talk a bit also about the background of, of doing uh, this kind of job. I can imagine that uh, working on such projects requires uh, substantial resources and not only human resources, but also money. Uh, we also know that media haven't really recovered from the financial crisis. What's the funding structure of such projects? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's sort of um, it's it's the main problem facing journalism today. Something I've been sort of studying since the crisis began in the second half of 2007. If you're curious, that's when uh, the bottom began to drop out of the American newspaper industry. And uh, print advertising sort of fell off the table, and the digital advertising was all scooped up at the time by Google, which was just coming into the mainstream, and then Craigslist, and now it's Google and Facebook essentially dominating the entire, I must be trillion-dollar industry of digital ads. Okay. What does that leave journalism? Well, not in a very good place at all, right? Because in the U.S., 80% of our revenue came from print ads. You know, we got 20% from subscriptions. Now that shifts has com- that has completely shifted, and the trouble is that the 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 cratering of the digital of the print ad advertising market led to uh, basically destruction of our business model. So how do we do it? Well, we haven't figured it out. We have not figured it out. We have not yet figured it out, and it's 15 years later, and uh, this is a problem. So. Um, here in Hungary, uh, basically, no, local news has been completely captured. There's no real model for a you know local entrepreneur. The, uh, in the U.S., the the uh, local uh, 
that's my back, background, basically. I came up through local news in the U.S. and Alabama and Rhode Island before I got to New York. And all those, all those institutions, those are really important civic a- assets are now essentially hollowed out. They're shadows of their former selves. So it's a, and so now we're, we have to turn, you know, right now, journalism is relying on a couple of, a few things, but none of them are nearly the, can support journalism at the scale that uh, newsrooms, newspapers used to do. But so to answer your question, we get handout. We are we are uh, uh, we are philanthropically funded at ICIJ, and we are also funded by um, by by readers like you. So um, really, I <laughs> we begun to sort of add these pitches into every kind of media appearances. If you can go to icij.org and and find the donate button and and uh, and uh, drop us uh, a little donation a little goes a long way so that's 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 sort of it so we're we're funded by philanthropies and um, and readers and uh, one thing that we are able to do is because precisely I guess because journalism is weakened globally it now has compelled everyone to join together with these weakened institutions to try and increase our power. And that's what ICIJ is able to do. So we're, the way I think of us as, is that we're not like a new model for, um, for journalism, we're, but we are, I put it, the way I put it is we're sort of making the best of a bad situation. So we, you know, the, um, the Lamont does not have, I mean, I don't know the finances of all these companies, but it's safe to say that the, the, our partners are not necessarily thriving financially. So Guardian, Le Monde, BBC, um, uh, Washington Post is actually doing well. But um, they, uh, if they, if we, we, we are able to, to do the work of, in this case, obtaining the documents, uploading them securely onto a platform, organizing this giant uh, collaboration where everyone works together behind the scenes for many, many months, and publishing all in the same day. And that that um, has made a would make made a much bigger impact than any single news organization could could produce on their own. And that's uh, that's sort of that's that's sort of the how how our our model works. We we work together with um, with um, trusted partners who together can uh, can uh, ex- uh, raise the level of their impact much more than they could on their own. My final question is, do you think we can expect similar leaks in the future? Yeah, so um, that whole, the, the leaks themselves, for me, even as a mystery even to me, they show up. And we, I work on them. That's kind of the thing, and it's, that's the way it's supposed to be. The fewer people who know where these leaks come from, the better. I would say this: um, ICIJ has done several rounds of, of leaks from uh, offshore service providers and and from institutions in the in the in banking and, and in the offshore world. 
uh, Pandora Papers is, is, as I said in the beginning, it's kind of the culmination of all of our work. It's the biggest, it's the grandest, it's the you know, most on many levels in terms of the number of uh, public figures we've uncovered 330 to number of Russian oligarchs 46 to number of billionaires 130 but who's counting right and um, the number of uh, beneficial owners is twice as much as the Pandora Panama Papers we have something like 29,000 so uh, this is sort of the, the 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 giant symbol crashing of the of all of these um, uh, uh, leaks and um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I really don't know what our next project is, honestly. <laughs> but I do know that we want this one to really resonate. And um, you, I don't know how much more you need. Well, I don't want to say that. I, don't, I was going to say how much more you need to know about the offshore system. We we're still. It's still much vaster than the 14 service providers that we've uncovered. There's hundreds of them. And you'll notice, and people have noted to me, it's like, <clears throat> where are the Americans? Where are the Chinese, et cetera? It's like, well, that's a good point. So we would like to, you know, just didn't happen to use these service providers that were the source of the, of the, uh, of the leaks. But um, if this one, I think, gives the gives a really broad view into this system and I think does provide uh, what you need to know uh, in order to to fix it. And so I think that's, that's I'll, I'll, I'll leave that answer there. Dean, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be with you, Robert. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you all for your attention. To engage in our other discussions, please follow the Review of Democracy and the CEU Democracy Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you, and goodbye.